Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 150. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Oh, another landmark, 150 episodes of this podcast. It's crazy, we've been coming in here for 150 weeks. And I'm still not sick to death at the sight of you just yet, really. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, you only see the top of my head. Exactly, I'm tied behind the monitor if I don't know look at you. Uh, but no, we do love doing this podcast. And I thought it might be a good opportunity, actually, because... We've, you know, you mentioned the other week that we've entered a new category in iTunes. We're top ten in the video games chart, which was amazing. Yeah, we've moved out of the tech news into into the category where we belong. I think video games actually, and also we're on audio boom now as well. The stats actually, you know, I think we've pretty much doubled our audience in about three months. Which, you know, we doubled it from the year before, so that's crazy how quickly the show's growing. But I thought it might be a good opportunity to kind of do a bit of a welcome to people that may have just stumbled across the podcast recently, because we've been lifelong fans. Of video games, haven't we? Totally, yeah. My whole youth, and I, I, I still spend every day kind of looking up stuff and playing on them. I know I should grow up, but I won't. <laughs> we never will. Boys in our toys. Well, we actually got a little tweet through in the week from Sean, and he said, you know, Dan and Ravi, you always start your interviews by asking your interviewees, what's your first computer or gaming experience? He goes, I've never heard yours. What is it? Yeah, um, I, I have distant memories of playing Missile Command or kind of Paperboy yeah. on a 20... I think it was 2600. Missile Command probably was. I don't think it was, was. Yeah, yeah. I think Paperboy was probably too advanced. Uh, Missile Command, the lines and the circles, that, that was good. And just the tension when you'd have a line and you, it would kind of go up and then just hit something and you'd be like, come on, I've got to get that little bit. <laughs> it's quite an adrenaline fuel game actually, Missile Command, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think for me it was like, you know, being at school was probably when I first came across them with like the BBC Micros and then um, got like a Commodore at home when I was like six years old and just, you know, you remember, you always hear these stories now, you see them on social media. I saw them the other day, it was like a, you know, people going, oh, I'm glad I grew up like in the 80s and 90s, not like today when kids are glued to screens. I'm like, well, I used to sit inside all the time playing on my, my computer when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, I think there was a point where I was a kid where basically I would have to sit with adults on a computer and yeah. then there was a point that they let you go on your own on them and that was when the fun started. Yeah, then before you know it, like four days have gone by. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the reason why we started doing this podcast. I mean, we've loved video games and technology and computers all of our lives. And the fact that we do this podcast every week not only lets us like kind of reminisce about our history and our memories, but also we get to talk to the people who were behind the games, the systems, the companies that we grew up playing and we love to find out more about. Yeah, and there's a lot of these new studios that are kind of doing like old school style games but they're they're developing collaboratively so they've maybe in other countries or other places and today we've got a absolutely fantastic one on bad goat studios and these guys are based in the kind of asia pacific region so we've never really touched on australia or new zealand or any of these kind of places and this game is called henry moss and the wormhole conspiracy it's a kind of point and click but it's got a lot of illustrated kind of drawings with it there's lots of stuff like it changes the storyline deciding on what you do and we're going to talk about how they got into this idea and you know it's their first production so it's going to be good to hear about the early forming of an indie company yeah and also learning what people in that part of the world grew up playing as well and like what their systems were you know in like australia new zealand yeah for us it's the other side of the world so and weirdly i mean we look at like the itunes stats and i think australia is like our fourth biggest region so it is good to actually you know great to have you guys listening nice to kind of cover that side of the world for a change in our podcast too but i mean that's one thing i didn't expect when we started doing this show just how much kind of modern 
retro developments there are. That kind of still blows my mind. Yeah, it's really kicked off, hasn't it, recently? Like, I remember there was the early indie scene and yeah. now there's a kind of uh, retro style scene and now uh, quite a lot of them are just doing games that kind of hark back to this classic style that we've forgotten, maybe a point-and-click adventure or a traditional kind of platformer. And in just a minute, we're going to talk about a new Commodore 64 game that's a little bit different to anything you would have played back in the, the day. The first new Commodore 64 commercial release. Oh, it's right, going to okay. be very interesting. See, the retro scene is thriving, and also the return of a classic company from back in the day with a new console in just a minute. Now, before we do that, though, we do like to give a big shout-out at the start of every show to the people who make this podcast possible. Because, I mean, like we did say, it really is a weekly podcast. I say that to some people, like, oh, you must miss a week here and there. I'm like, no, we, we, we take one week a year off. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we've we've been pretty consistent, even when I've been ill. Yeah, and you've been ill. We've both been dying <laughs> in crazy situations. The shows still come out, so we'll continue to do that. Yeah, Ravi's been there with a towel around his head and his feet in a bowl of water, <laughs> and like, <laughs> drinking lemony drinks, snotting yeah. on the desk. But we make it in here every week. But the only reason we can is thanks to the people who support this show. And help us into the running of it, really. So, I mean, it means we just don't have to pay for the entire thing out of our own pocket, which, you know, is always appreciated. So if you'd like to make a little donation into the running of the podcast, any amount, big or small, is massively appreciated and all goes back into the running of the podcast 100%. And you will get a shout on a future episode in the Hall of Fame. Now, this week, we want to say a big thank you to Jonathan Kay. Louis Segarra. Michael Reynolds. And Frank Edvin Rundholt. We do try our best with the pronunciation, so uh, it gives you a bit of a giggle if we get it wrong, at least, anyway. I'm sure some people just, like, you know, back to the keyboard and just say, yeah, how are they going to pronounce this? <laughs> <laughs> but listen, guys, honestly, we really appreciate your help. And if you'd like to make a donation, all you've got to do is nip onto the website. We accept PayPal, or there's even cryptocurrency if you're into that as well, and you'll find it all on the front page of theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into the news this week, we've actually got a great little offer. And, you know, we'd really appreciate it if you did this, and you'll get something nice out of it as well. Have a look at our sponsor now, The Economist, our sponsor in the Retro Hour podcast again this week. Now, The Economist, the thing about it is, I mean, before we started reading The Economist, I assumed by the name that it was stuff like um, economics and finance, which it is, but there's actually a lot more to it than just that. I mean, they cover all kinds of things in there. Yeah, they've got gaming and technology sections, but they've even got, like, book reviews, but they're about, like, video game books. So, you know, there's loads of stuff in there. Yeah, and um, they've been going 170 years. The thing about The Economist is especially in this day and age where you get so much false news around and stuff like that, it's good to have a well-established brand and, you know, a magazine that's just got stuff in there that you can really trust as well, so you know it's going to be legit stuff. And there's some really interesting articles. I mean, we've been looking at this. I didn't realise that China is actually the world's biggest video game market. Neither did I, no. I thought, <laughs> I thought maybe Japan yeah. would be, you know, a lot more ravenous on the games, but no. There's well, a lot more people in China, though, isn't there? So. Yeah, and I mean, the thing about it is I've actually had a bit of a gaming crackdown over there. And the kind of being, it's a really interesting article, actually. It kind of talks about not only what the scene is like in China, but also, you know, the way that video games companies play, like, kind of psychological tricks on people to extract money from them, you know, like stuff like downloadable DLC, that kind of thing, too. And this actually goes really in-depth into that. It's a very interesting Oh, yeah, read. it talks about how politicians kind of are, are using their... Uh, you know, video game violence kind of thing in China to justify some of this stuff as well. It's really interesting. Yeah, so if you want to find out essentially what's going on in the world, I mean, stuff like that that you generally don't read on, like, you know, the tech websites I usually go on or on gaming websites, it's absolutely worth having a look. And we've actually got a little offer for you here where you can get a free copy in print, so it'll come through the post, 
And you can be reading. That's the thing that we love magazines as well, just having a physical magazine to read. You know, anywhere you go, it's always good. So The Economist is a smart guide to the forces changing your world, and you can get a free copy and help out the Retro Hour podcast just by texting the word retro and send that to 78070. And for doing that, you'll get a free copy. You'll be really helping out the show. So get your free print copy of The Economist today. Text retro and send it to 78070. Now, before we chat to the guys from Bad Goat Studios and get a bit of the kind of Australian-New Zealand scene and talk about Henry Moss and the wormhole conspiracy, this really interesting new game that will appeal to fans of retro gaming. Let's talk a bit about the Intellivision Amico. Oh, what's this? I've, uh, I, I remember they were talking a while ago about um, kind of how the Intellivision licence had been purchased. So yeah. is, is this a new Intellivision? Well, we did discuss this probably about a year ago. Now, this was um, industry veteran Tommy Tallarico. Now, he's got a very, very big history in video games. I mean, I'm looking at games that he's worked on. He's been involved in stuff like Earthworm Jim, uh, Metroid Prime, Sonic, Pac-Man, Aladdin, Madden Football, Guitar Hero. He did the uh, video games live stuff as well, which he was like does, kind yeah. of live performances. And uh, he's pretty cool live performer I hear myself. Yeah, he's yeah. been doing that for, God, it must be knocking on 20 years. He's been yeah. doing those now. And he's actually got a Guinness World Record for the most video games worked on in a lifetime. Wow. Now, Tommy actually grew up playing the Intellivision and about a year ago, probably, it came out, um, I think it was a little YouTube video that he'd released saying, look, you know, I own the Intellivision brand. We are going to make a new Intellivision console. And everyone thought, oh, OK, this is interesting. So, I mean, there has been, over the last couple of years, let's be fair, a few kind of shady businesses and consoles that have come along, kind of bringing back classic names from the past and trying to stamp them on something new that's completely not related to Yeah, the there's been a few uh, uh, failed projects and stuff that have kind of led to a few names being dragged through the dirt. But um, we'll see how this one goes because this guy's got some really good background in the industry. And I mean, looking at this video, they released a little reveal trailer um, a couple of weeks ago and the team they've got working on this is actually really impressive. Now, they've got a Jason Enos. He's at the VP of production. Um, he's worked at Sega, Konami, Electronic Arts, and Namco. He's worked on games like um, Tekken, Castlevania, um, Dance Dance Revolution he's been working on recently too. He's involved in it. They've also got um, Perrin Kaplan. Uh, she's a marketing manager. She's worked in the industry for 20 years. He used to be the VP of marketing and corporate affairs for Nintendo. Okay. Um, so. Worked on systems like the SNES and the Nintendo 64 as well. Uh, she's involved. They've got um, Beth, Beth Llewellyn. She worked at Nintendo and PR for 12 years. So, I mean, they've got a, a team here with some real credentials, which I think these other projects like the Coleco Chameleon and the Atari Box and stuff like that haven't had that kind of expertise and people who've kind of got that proven track record behind it, which makes this straight off the mark completely different, I think. Yeah, because some of the titles that they're talking about are stuff like Pong, Tempest, yeah. uh, you know, minor... Uh, 2049er, Bad Dudes, R-Type. You know, they've got some big names on this one. Toe Jam and Earl. Well, know. the interesting thing about it is now, Tommy's vision is that this console is going to get into a slot in the market that is not currently filled. So it's going to be family entertainment, essentially. So every game that comes out on this new Intellivision console is going to be family-friendly rated. There's going to be nothing like, you know, violent or nothing yeah. that kids couldn't play, which is interesting. And you look at it and you think, oh, is it going to be like, you know, Atari 2600 graphics? Apparently, it's a very powerful 2D console. And they reckon in terms of raw power, it will actually be more powerful than a PS4 and Xbox One in terms of 2D graphics. I like that idea of going for the family market because the Wii 
you know, everyone yeah. thought, oh, that's not going to happen. And then it became a huge selling console that even your gran had a wee. Now, this is also really, really interesting. And I, th- I don't know if this is going to be the strongest selling point of the system or its downfall. Every game version on the console is exclusive to that platform. So you mentioned those, you know, famous games they've got on here, these like classic games they're bringing back. They're all going to be versions that are exclusively made for this platform with differences to the original kind of remade. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll see. If, if, if they do them well, then they could be like the ultimate version. You never know. That's the thing, though. I mean, what I think they might struggle with is, I mean, the pricing is all right. They said it's going to be um, 149 to 179 US dollars. And they've actually got a release date for it. It's going to be out on October 10th. 2020, so very specific. They've actually nailed down the exact date it's going to come out. But I wonder, though, are developers going to want to commit to just this one system if you worked on a game? Or would you be like, look, I've made this game. I want to put it on Xbox and PS4 and Switch. Yeah, we'll see. I, I, I'm really excited about this one. It does sound like, you know, out of all these kind of classic brands they want to bring back into the 21st century... This looks like the one that might have the most chance of making it. So I think looking at it as well, I mean, the controller looks pretty nice. Mm. If you watch the video, yeah. it's got two wireless Bluetooth controllers included in it as well. Um, a color touchscreen on them too. Um, it's got tactile feedback buttons, gyroscope accelerometers in there too. It looks really good and it actually comes with 20 games built into it as well. HDMI video output on there, um, Bluetooth, system expansion interface. You could do stuff extra, you know, do add-ons on it too. And it's also got stuff like an online service, multiplayer online too, that they're offering. So it does sound an interesting system. And to me, the last system I really remember that was geared towards 2D was probably the Sega Saturn. Yeah. So yeah. it's been a long time since we've had a really good system designed to do 2D. And that could be a gap in the market. I mean, if you get some good fighting games and that on there and shoot them up. So. It's, it's weird because I don't, like, Americans, they have a lot of nostalgia with the Intellivision. Yeah. I, I don't have that, so it doesn't get me. For me, it's like, oh, it's a new console. But it's not like bringing on, like, oh, yeah, the old one. Yeah, I mean, I probably know, didn't know about Intellivision until about the 90s. It probably. would be something to explore for me. I do actually quite want one of these because it's just going to be totally different to what else is out there. And yeah, it's like, yeah. That, that's what's exciting about it. So, And the fact they've got that team working behind it does give me a lot of confidence. I mean, people who've had proven track records like Sega and Nintendo, and that's only got to be a positive thing. So um, hopefully we're going to be chatting to Tommy soon. You know, we've been chatting to him online, so if we can get him on the podcast at some point, we will. But we'll keep you up to date on that. Very exciting. Now let's talk about the... First commercial Commodore 64 game in quite a while, let me see. Well, yeah, it's... Uh... Basically, Farming Simulator. Have you heard of Farming Simulator? It's an absolute huge game. On the PC, yeah. It's on the PC, Xbox 360, uh, the Xbox One, PS3, 4, Vita, 3DS, and Switch. And now it's going to join us on the Commodore 64. Because, I mean, there's been a lot of these games over the last couple of years. And I I don't know what the first one was. Was it like Truck Driving Simulator or something? Uh, Yeah, there was like lorry truck, Euro trucking and stuff like this. Bus Driver Simulator. And I remember watching them on like, God, Twitch or something about... 10 years ago, maybe, what the heck is this? That should be like, that's quite, that's quite interesting. I wouldn't mind driving like a train across. Yeah, like yeah, if you think of uh, some kind of old games that you used to play, like Harvest Moon and stuff, isn't yeah. that just a farming simulator, you know? It's yeah. like, yeah. Even like flight sims and stuff, I guess, you know, I think for, probably for the demographic that these games appeal to, you know, it's, it's probably quite nerdy guys who want to get a bit hands-on with machinery. So I can see why the games do well, and I think they're quite, quite chill to play as well, aren't they? Yeah, so what's happening here is uh, they're basically 
going to be releasing a brand new version, which is Farming Simulator 19, the PC's collector edition. But what is happening is they're putting in a Commodore 64 version, which is absolutely crazy. So they said they had some friends who were kind of in the C64 scene. They got the C64 version commissioned and they've paid the developers. So this really is a commercial game for the C64. And it's going to go out in production with the PC one. So there will be 70,000 units of this sent worldwide. With the C64 version inside. So everyone that buys a PC version is going to get the Commodore yeah. 64 version too. Yeah, and apparently it's going to come on like a D64 format and it's going to have like CRT kind of emulation on there too. And they've even designed the packaging of the, the CD-ROM in the style of a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. So yeah, you yeah. Put it on an emulator or you could put it on a real Commodore 64 or if you've got a C64 Mini, you could load it onto that too, I guess. And it's going to have isometric landscapes. They've got like a little tune in there as well 60 kilobytes for the uh, music you know and looking at the screenshots i mean it looks really good you know they've got the title screen there farming simulator rendered on a c64 it looks beautiful the colors yeah yeah they've spent some uh, money on this one and it's officially by the actual company giant software so this is like a proper c64 port it's it's absolutely mental what i love about it as well is that people are going to buy this game and they're going to be like, oh, maybe I'll fire up Vice and have a go at some Commodore 64 games. And then, then before you know it, they're on eBay finding C64. Yeah. And that's how it starts, isn't it? That's how it gets you. So it could get you know quite a nice influx into the Commodore 64 scene from people that kind of strayed away and will now come back into it. Yeah, hopefully this will be a trend and other companies will start. I can't wait to have uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 for my <laughs> C64. That's it. But, I mean, it's a good idea if you're making a modern game because there are that many new games come out all the time, especially indie games. Trying to get covered is quite difficult. It's going to get you the headline, isn't yeah, it? You exactly. Know? If you're doing, yeah. like, you know, you're including the Commodore 64 game, people are going to go, oh, what's going on here? This is interesting. Um, I love the little line at the end as well when it's game over. Game over, now try to farm like you've never farmed before. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great tagline. So, um, is the game out yet? Is, is it out released yet, this game? Uh, the 20th of the 11th, 2018. All right, so, we'll be out yeah. by the time the show comes out. So, if you want to get hold of that, I mean, it is this time of year when... Everyone's thinking, oh, what shall I ask for for Christmas? That'd be pretty cool. So we'll put a link in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Sat at home farming on your C64 is <laughs> awesome. On Christmas Day. Yeah. Leave me alone, kids. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of Christmas coming up, and uh, you probably like me, is your missus asking you, what do you want for Christmas then? Yeah, yeah. Well, she's kind of like, uh, yeah, she's she's waiting for stuff to come back from America. Yeah. So she's like, get me this, get me that, get me that. So we'll see what I get for Christmas. Oh, you're buying stuff for yourself then, are you? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's my birthday coming up in a couple of weeks too, and everyone's asking me. And it is this time, yeah, well, I don't know if you're like me, and it's like, you think, oh, what can I ask for? It's like, yeah. there's that much stuff out there. Well, here's a little idea, and uh, this is a really cool book from one of our good friends, The Nostalgia Nerd. Now, um, we've known Peter for years great YouTube channel. I had him on the podcast a couple of times. And he's released his first book, The Nostalgia Nerds Retro Tech Computer Consoles and Games Tech Classics, which is out now. And we thought rather than us talking about it, let's get him on. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Oh, it's a it's a pleasure to be here as as always. Uh, your YouTube channel's been doing really well recently, hasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, since the last time I came on, it has grown exponentially, hasn't it? I, I think I think I was at 50,000 before, and now I've just cracked the 200,000 barrier. So I'm quite pleased with how it's going. I was uh, watching your video today on the Dragon 32, learning lots of stuff. 
Dragon 32. When, when did I do that? That was about two or three years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. there's some good stuff on there. Ravi's just bought one, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you, you need to... Um, have you got the Phantom for it? Because that is an amazing game. Uh, no, no. Do- I've got Donkey King. <laughs> oh, mate, mate. Not, not, not so great. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you do cover all sorts of systems. One that I love that you did recently. Um, and I think probably the only really in-depth video on the system on the whole of YouTube, actually, you cover the Atari Falcon. Oh, yeah, it's such an amazing machine, isn't it? It's one of those machines where you saw it in the 90s and you were like, oh, I, I need I need that machine, that computer. And so I, I was sent one uh, earlier uh, in this year and and I, I had to do a lot of research on it first because it's, information on it is so sparse and so hidden away that it took a while to compile. But that was, yeah, that was an interesting video to make. Yeah, because I remember at the time it was like Amiga 1200 versus Falcon. I used to read that in all the magazines and everything. But yeah, I don't think I've actually saw a Falcon like in the flesh anywhere. No, yeah. no, no. I mean, I, people barely knew about it, did they? There, there was like one appearance of it on Bad Influence and then it just kind of disappeared again. But it was phenomenal technology. It's just, um, it's just a shame that Atari couldn't push it further, I guess. So is this book kind of like a, a reference guide for all of the older consoles and computers a lot like your channel is I, I guess it, i guess it kind of is it was i mean it, it was intended to be a kind of story of gaming in a, a sort of desktop console computer sense about how it's progressed from the magnafox odyssey uh, all the way to the xbox so it's just kind of a story weaves through the computers and consoles, which I think are most significant, and explains, you know, how each one helped push gaming forward. Because I know, looking at the um, little synopsis on Amazon here, it says, "Remember what a wild frontier the early days of home gaming were," and that really was true, wasn't it? And it you know, it was a very, very exciting and very pioneering era. People were still trying to figure it all out, I guess. Yeah, I, I, we, we we just miss that now, don't we? I mean, back then it was. I mean, just all you've got to do is look at a book to see how many machines were available at the time. And it was just exciting just picking between them just to start with. And now we haven't got that choice. We haven't got all these manufacturers popping up with the latest uh, technology and models. We've just got the same sort of platform. So it was it was crazy, crazy days. And that's why it was, it's so exciting to write about it. I guess they were kind of trying to innovate where these days you couldn't see anybody coming in with a new console to take on the Xboxes or the Playstations. That would just be a huge risk, wouldn't it? But whereas back then they were taking chances and uh, cutting their own paths to see what worked, whereas now it's just, yeah, the risk is gone. It's all about safety now, isn't it? Just about kind of pandering to what we know and just following the same routes. And it's it's just not nowhere near as exciting. Well, how's it been researching and writing the book then? Has that been a, a bit of a slog? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was because, because although I I tend to think I know quite a lot, you have to fact check everything, don't you? Because there's always some kind of facts that twist in your head and and and, and, and go astray. So I, I wrote it um, at the end, started at the end of 2017 in November and finished in January 2018. But... Um, yeah, it, it was it was it was quite a lot of work just making sure everything was was you know as accurate as I could get it. But you know, it's fun as well looking into these uh, histories. 
Yes, that's the thing, I guess. It's not like on the internet when it's in print. It's, it's like there forever, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, there are actually a couple of things um, which, are, having looked through, I want to change. Just some minor things. So I think on a, another print, we're going to push some other bits out. But like you say, it is kind of, it's in hard paper. You can't update it and then save it and just push it out like we're used to. So um yeah, it's kind of it, it was quite a, a big deal to get everything everything as accurate as possible. Well, you've got a really good price point in there as well, because I noticed it's five ninety nine uh, for the hardback version and seven ninety nine for the Kindle, and that's a really good price for a stocking filler, I think. That, yeah, I, I, I'm not even sure how companies like that are managing to push it for that price. I mean, that is, I mean, you, you've got these books coming up on Kickstarter, and they are priced. 20 30 pounds which is still good value for um you know the sort of work that goes into these books so uh, it is it's quite a good price i i would you know if i hadn't written it i'd probably buy it myself for that price (laughs) there's an endorsement for the back of the next edition (laughs) (laughs) so what's kind of the feedback been like then from the community because i know you've had like you've been number one in a lot of the the bestseller charts yeah pretty good um better than i'd hoped for really we're loads of uh, good reviews have been put on amazon and other places and loads of people have been tweeting me about it and sending me emails saying how much they've enjoyed it um so uh yeah it's it's been quite a humbling experience um there was a brief period of time in the last couple of weeks when it went into the um it was it was in the fascism category on Amazon, which was <laughs> quite worrying. So I think algorithm need to tweak uh, Amazon need to tweak their algorithms a bit there. But other than that, it's been pretty good. Who do you think the book is aimed at then? Obviously, not fascists. <laughs> <laughs> no, fascists are not allowed. Um, who, who should buy the book though? Uh, well, I mean, I like I do with most things I make, I aim it for myself, and then hope that there's other people like me out there. Who would be interested? So I guess it's it's more aimed for people who who grew up with these machines but didn't get to own the you know it, I mean no one ha- is gonna had the chance to own all of these machines. So it's for people who grew up with a particular set of machines maybe and want to reflect on the nostalgia of those, but then look at the other machines which were available and just get an idea of the games for each machine because I've I've tried to put. Um, a selection of games which they should play that would amaze you because it looks amazing and a game which you should avoid on each machine. So it's just designed to give a broad look with a bit of history about each each gaming machine. So anyone who's interested in that, really. I think for guys like me, it generally reads as like, you know, a shopping list as well. Like, <laughs> I better get one of those off eBay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, at, at, when I was writing it, I was thinking, oh, my God, I've, I, I haven't got one of those. I might, I might have played one recently, but I'd like to add one to the collection. It soon gets pretty expensive. Dan's going to be sitting there circling it like the Argos catalogue. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't write in the book. <laughs> well, the Nostalgia Nerds Retro Tech Computers, Consoles and Games, available now uh, from Amazon. I'll put a link in this week's show notes as well. So if you want a nice little geeky trip down memory lane for Christmas, then um, definitely worth a buy. Uh, Peter, it's been lovely catching up with you. Yeah, and you. Thank you very much. Now, this is really exciting, especially for you. We did an episode about Command & Conquer not too long ago, actually, with um, Lewis Castle, Westwood Studios. Yeah. You were proper fanboying on that episode. Oh, you? totally. And I was asking him, you know, come on, we need to have a remake or we need to have something new because 
Gemmels 2 was cancelled. Command and Conquers, they've done a few mobile phone games, but it's not really got back to its original roots. And you know, that was such a huge franchise. It was absolutely massive. Command and Conquer fans are still there and we need a, a good hit. And it looks like EA have actually um, answered our call at the moment. And they're saying that they're going to do remastered versions. And this is going to be a full remaster of the whole early series. Oh, wow. So it'll start with Command and Conquer. Conquer Tiberian Dawn, it'll go on to Red Alert, all the expansion packs, uh, the co-op, covert ops, Counter-Strike as well, Aftermath. You know, that's all the big classic ones. We're hoping that they'll go to Red Alert 2 as well, Yuri's Revenge. They've got to do that. But they've also announced a few little details, and we've got a little clip that we're going to play here. So the number one request that everyone had was you got to bring back Frank Kropacki. That's you right. So we're, probably should. so we're thinking about it. Should we do and, it? Yeah, let's do it. All, All right. right. All right. There he is. We're back. We're doing this. So, Little teasers, aren't they? <laughs> so uh, Frank Kropacki was basically the guy who did the soundtrack. Yeah, legendary soundtrack. Did the Hell March, all of the banging tunes. So having him back with the original team is absolutely amazing. I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, the fact that they're getting the original team involved in it as well, I think, is, you know, they're going to do it properly, aren't they? And that is a proper fan pleaser as well, doing it that way. Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering, are they going to refilm all the FMV scenes? Because they've got Frank back. Mm. We want Kane back. Yeah. That would be amazing. (laughs) Very exciting news when this kind of thing happens too. And what people are saying here as well is it looks like they're going to do this properly, you know, a bundle of the original games and expansions with no microtransactions in there as well. That's the a very staff, good point because that really annoyed everybody with the new versions that there was all these microtransactions. Yeah, yeah. so, um, yeah, that's amazing news. So we'll keep an eye on that and uh, we'll keep you up to date, of course, with that. And everything else we talked about in this week's show on our website at theretrohour.com. Right, that's all the news that we've got for this week. We will have more on next Friday's episode of the podcast. Um, we did mention before, if you are new to the show, then welcome on board. If you listen every week, great to have you there. Would be nice if you left us a little review on your favourite podcast client of choice. It always helps get us in front of new people. If you know those little five-star ratings or four, I think that's that weird. We don't get any lower than four, do we? <laughs> no. Three? Well, I accept three, all right. Three Three's <laughs> absolute lowest. Uh, that's always massively appreciated, though, guys, and that uh, helps us get into those charts and reach new people. Right then, let's get to the other side of the world. Talk to the guys from Bad Goat Studios about this amazing new game, Henry Moss and the Wormhole Conspiracy. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for this week's main event. Time to get on our very special guest. This time, we're crossing all the way to the other side of the world by the, the magic of Skype uh, to Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to the show, Felix and Ezra from Bad Goat Studios. Hi, guys. Thanks for having us. Hi, pleasure to be here. Yeah, our pleasure as well. It's crazy that actually chatting to you all this, all this distance away, it actually sounds better quality than some people we've had like about five miles up the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no thanks to Australian internet, I'm sure. <laughs> the joys of technology. Now, I mean, before we get into kind of what you guys have been working on recently, we always like to get a bit of a background on our guests. So it's always nice to kind of find out, you know, what initially got you into video games and computers. I mean, we'll start with you, Felix. What was kind of your earliest gaming experience? What got you into it? Oh boy, my earliest game experience i had quite an unconventional route into games which by no means came from a tech background but i do have a lot of very very strong vivid memories of playing games in my early youth even though i was never really allowed 
consoles until quite a late age. I, I have some very, very strong memories of being over at friends' houses and playing on the PlayStation 1. And I have strong memories of playing specifically Croc and Rayman and some weird game about being an army man. But uh, most of these memories, I can't actually pin a specific game to. A lot of them are just a bit of like, like a weird emotional haze because I think I was just so excited to be playing a, a video game and something that I wasn't necessarily able to do at home. And Rayman was a great um, game. I used to love that as well. Yeah. And I also, um, my dad had a Mac, I think it was a G2 or a G3. Um, and I have very vivid memories of playing some bizarre Jetsons, Jetsons themed game called Jetsons Space Race. Um, and never being able to beat it. And I just have very strong memories of the little sting that would play when you lose the game, where basically your boss would tell you off for being late and he'd go, Jetson, you're late. And and that, that little audio bit is just stuck in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> that first childhood heartbreak getting told off by the game. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> what about you, Ezra, then? Where, where did it start for you? I grew up playing games like Heroes of Modern Magic, Warcraft, one Warcraft two, um, but I think the earliest gaming experience that I can recall is Jazz Jackrabbit. Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, which was so weird. Uh, such a zany game, but I used to love it. So, what kind of systems did you guys have available in Australia then? Because I know there was a lot of kind of crossover with the Commodore stuff, and I, I assume you guys had the Sega and Nintendo stuff as well. But was there anything? specifically Australian? I, that's yeah. a, it's a very good question. I'm not actually sure. I do know that there is one very definitive Australian gaming experience that everybody that I know is familiar with, and that's receiving demo discs in packets of Kellogg's cereal. Oh, wow. Did that happen, that happen mm. to you, right? I don't, I don't is remember that, a, that, is that just an here. Australian thing? Was that like PlayStation demos and stuff then? Or? All kinds. Oh. Uh, like... Lots of Macintosh PC demo discs. Mm. Age of Empires 2 was a big one. Everyone had Age of Empires 2 from Nutrient Packets. And we, we just got little toys you had to build. They were awful. Yeah, we would have <laughs> loved demo discs. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's a quintessentially Australian thing. But um, in terms of actual consoles and hardware, I'm not sure what... I'm pretty sure we just got what everyone else got. <laughs> and probably a bit later. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what about your journey into making games then? Where, where did that start? Yeah, sure. So, like I said, I came from a somewhat unconventional background when it comes to making games. I actually came through a mixture of theatre and science. So my, my father is a theatre director and I was kind of surrounded by actors and playwrights and in amongst the theatre doing things, building sets, being on stage myself from a, from a very young age and always thought that I'd be one day a playwright or an actor at some point. In my teenhood, that dream died and I decided to do science instead. So I went and studied neuroscience and took that to university for a few years and then fell deeply, deeply out of love with it um, and kind of entered this this zone of not really knowing what I want to do with myself, which I think is quite common for a lot of people around like early university and rediscovered my love of games primarily through board games and role-playing games, which then led to me creating a lot of my own board games and creating my own role-playing games and creating 
kind of a mixture between that and bringing my theatre background in too and creating these almost um, immersive evening experiences where I'd have 10 to 20 friends around and there'd be some kind of loose rule set and we'd play out these bizarre scenarios. Um, And then I was speaking to someone one day and they just pointed out that what I was doing was game design, which was a surprise to me. And through that, I ended up enrolling at Swinburne University here in Melbourne. Um, They have a game, uh, a degree in games and interactivity. Um, And through that started my journey into development. So by no means a conventional route. (laughs) We've actually heard a few people say that, you know, people have kind of gone into, especially the adventure kind of genre, that they were doing kind of, you know, offline gaming, I guess you call it, you know, real life gaming, Mm. and then actually designing games that you do physically. And then that kind of translated to digital later on. Absolutely. And I think it's, I think there's a very strong DNA strand from storytelling and Mm. writing and this kind of, um, yeah, almost theatrical sense of storytelling in adventure games. I find it's definitely a genre that has always appealed to me primarily for the storytelling capabilities. Yeah, that's definitely how kind of, uh, you know, similar journey of mine is coming from a storytelling. I studied film and, um, and I was just always interested in stories and storytelling. Then I also, on the other side, I also did web development and programming, which is kind of the, the polar opposite of, of, you know, humanities, <laughs> narrative, uh, you know, storytelling and design and writing. And um, through university, I did a lot of work with transmedia. Um, I did a mentorship and uh, it's always been a, definitely always been a dream to to create a story within a game world. So, and now hence, you are. And hence Henry Moss, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering because... You guys are developing a point-and-click game. I was wondering why you chose the kind of classic games. and Did you have to go back and look at some of these older titles and maybe discover stuff that you hadn't found before? Um, I grew up definitely playing a lot of point-and-click adventure games. Um, a lot of the kind of the classics like, you know, uh, Monkey Island, Day of the Tentacle, um, Grim Fandango, and then and the Sierra games, the King's Quest series... And then there was this really weird game that I recall, and I have never been able to find it again, but it was called Trick or Treat. And I'm sure that that game was impossible to beat and that (laughs) there was some glitch or some bug or something in it because you'd get 90% of the way through and then there was absolutely nothing you could do. And... So, yeah, I just haven't, I've Googled it. I haven't been able to find the game. <laughs> if, only, if only we had two people with an encyclopedic knowledge of retro gaming yeah. present who knew about this. I could but, see Dan go through the archives yeah, in his head. I'm guessing it's Halloween-based, but yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a new one on me, actually. I must admit. I suspect they just, they erased it from history because they knew it was impossible to beat. That's awesome. right. That's yeah. It sounds like there's a YouTube documentary in that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever considered the fact that maybe you just weren't good enough? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I guess, I mean, looking at these older games, I mean, I often find this when you do play them, I mean, a lot of the time then they were kind of still working out the mechanics of how players would interact with games. And a lot of those kind of, especially the LucasArts early titles, are a little bit unfair going back and playing them now and the stuff in there that maybe modern day players wouldn't have the patience for. So, I mean, was it also kind of a lesson in like, as well as what to do, what not to do as well? A hundred percent, yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of the design is outright aggressive sometimes. <laughs> Very unforgiving, um, which, you know, maybe speaks to an era in games where people didn't have the expectation that games were going to be easy or going to be a, you know, necessarily something you didn't have to give a lot of energy to. So for me, I completely missed the boat on adventure games in my youth and only really discovered them a few years ago. Um, And it's definitely something that I almost bounced off straight away and was shocked by was just the um the lack of hand holding and the the uh, the obtuse design and yeah I, I suppose the the impenetrable and inaccessible nature of a lot of them but then also looking at a lot of them you're able to then say okay well how do we capture what is really beautiful about these experiences and display that or frame that in a way that modern audiences will happily engage with. And I think that there's, yeah, there is this whole renaissance period now of adventure games re-emerging and bringing more sleek modern design to the table. Um, and that's been received really well. And it's, def- it's definitely something that we've been trying to do with Henry Moss is find every opportunity that we can to just broaden it out and make it, make it the most pleasant experience possible mm-hmm. for players, especially young players now who are very much used to having a whole library of games to choose from. So if they bounce off something, they're not going to go away and think about it and come back. Well, maybe they will if they're committed, but they're much more likely to just reach for the next game. Well, the game's called Henry Moss and the Wormhole Conspiracy. Um, So give us a lowdown on the game then for people that may not have watched the trailer. What's it about? What inspired it? What's the story? Great. So it's a coming of age adventure about family and independence set in a goofy space time. So it's about young Henry Moss. He lives in a distant retro future alternative reality. Um, and uh, he, he works with his mother, Saren, operating an interstellar delivery business. When a mysterious business opportunity arises in a faraway galaxy, Saren gets whisked off and Henry is left to fend for himself in a strange galaxy for the first time. So it's really a, a coming-of-age story about... Henry and his mother being broken apart and finding their way back together again. In the process, they uncover a big, evil, galactic corporate conspiracy. uh, And the two of them together thwart it and fulfill a secret family legacy that was founded a generation ago. I I, I suppose those, those stories of being youthful and a little bit headstrong and getting far, far too deep into trouble and trying to pull yourself back out of it again. Well, for listeners who haven't kind of seen the style of it, it's got a beautiful cartoon style and it uh, illustrated. It kind of reminds me of like Dragon's Lair, Space Ace, but also Broken Sword and a bit of the Jetsons like you mentioned (laughs) earlier. Um, (laughs) where, Where did all these design ideas come from? It kind of evolved over time again, but um, it's an interesting kind of mix of, um, of I think, different cultural influences because we've got um, Adeline, who, who is um, an Indonesian artist. She lives in Sydney, but she kind of, she was the um, initial concept artist and she brought um, 
her own style and a lot of kind of anime style to it. And then a lot of the kind of ideas um, were either from myself or from Felix um, around characters and around um, around kind of world design. Um, and that's, you know, kind of West, our, our influence is Western influence. Um, it just seems to be quite a, an eclectic mix to us anyway, um, but that works quite well, hybrid of these kind of two worlds. Yeah, and our, our other artists, Rachel and Kit, they do a fantastic job at synthesizing a lot of these ideas as well. So Adeline is an incredible concept artist and will come up with the most goofy, goofy, bizarre characters. Um, and then Rachel and Kit's, one of their great strengths, one of their many great strengths, is that they're able to take these goofy characters and then really think about, okay, how would this character fit within a world and what's the what's the technology and what's the culture of this world and, and kind of dig into that almost um, world-building mm. zone um, and they, they are able to create a whole suite of other characters and environments to suit and then we'll go away and do a bunch of writing around that. And it's, it's, so it's this incredible uh, iterative collaborative loop where we kind of cycle back and forth and pass concepts around and pass ideas around and sketches and drawings and bits of writing and everyone's, you know, sticking their own bits to it. And then eventually at some point that gets refined down and synthesized. And I think Rachel and Kit uh, really helped to lead that process visually. One thing I, I've seen recently a lot of indie developers are doing is kind of obviously releasing the main version on like, you know, Steam and Xbox and PS4, but often like they do like ports back to retro systems as well. I mean, would you ever consider doing anything like that? Maybe like a Dreamcast release or something? Don't know about Dreamcast. <laughs> uh, it's something that we haven't really looked at at this stage. We're really just focusing on um, Windows and Mac at the moment. But, you know, we are we have started looking now at kind of future ports, whether it's to mobile, to consoles or to or even to retro consoles. Um, but I guess the great thing about this game and the design is that it's quite platform agnostic. Um, so, you know, it's not um, in terms of the inputs, it's quite a simple Quite a sim simple game um, in terms of the me you know the, the me mechanics behind it. So to yeah to, to port it over shouldn't be too difficult. I, I mean yeah one of the beautiful things with adventure games is mm. the interaction space is often quite straightforward and it doesn't necessarily require overly complex inputs mm. from the player, um, which has yeah allowed us to design in a way that is very it's, it's very malleable. In a, in, a, in a sense. But bringing it to other platforms is definitely something that I'd be interested in doing. I'd love to see how it, how that would even change the feel from for the user, like mm. the experience that they have if they're seated on a couch, playing it on a console or playing yeah. it on a retro console or, you know. It, 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 yeah, because <laughs> all of this stuff does feed into the user experience almost at that meta level. And I bet, I bet there's someone listening to the retro I know is thinking, I could make that run on a, on a Sega Mega Drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please reach out. <laughs> well, one thing you mentioned there was how the kind of old point and clicks would have, you know, stuff that was quite hard for the user, uh, stuff like pixel hunting, and sometimes you'd get kind of stuck in the game. Um, you mentioned that you had some gadgets and... Uh, different devices to help you get unstuck. Could you talk more about these? Um, yeah, so 
we've addressed some of those issues like pixel hunting with which is one of the most yeah as we all know one of the most frustrating things <laughs> about point and old point and clicks um with a handy lens gadget that henry carries with him where um basically the player can see um, all of the interactable hotspots in the area um on the scene that that they know they can interact with um and in terms of getting stuck in the game um there's kind of, we've, we've, we're developing this kind of hint system which um, rather than just giving you a walkthrough or giving you the answer to a, a problem um, which you know can also be um, quite annoying for players when if they get stuck they don't necessarily want to know the answer but they just want to be guided in the right direction mm, a gentle little nudge a gentle little nudge yeah so there's uh, this hint system that kind of unravels and you know you, you can it'll give you a, a kind of a vague hint and then if you need a bit more it will, it will give you a little bit more of a specific um, direction and all the way until it will just give you the answer um, but at least it gives the player the ability to control kind of how much information they they get to progress. And I, One of the great things about doing sci-fi is that you can kind of roll a lot of this into the narrative conceit of all future gadgets um, <laughs> but the other the other one of the other great strengths is that for a large portion of the game and especially for the most difficult portion of the game, you are traveling with um, the mother character, Saren, again. Mm -hmm. And so we're really able to play off their relationship and their, like, do a more conversational in-world approach, um, which is inspired by, um, oh, my God, I was complaining on the name, Thimbleweed Park. Yeah, well, I was we going to ask we about that, actually. Together, and they have some amazing in-world um, hint-giving between the two characters. I remember being a kid and having to read, like, you know, magazines to kind of get the, you know, part of the solution for games like Monkey Island, you know, before you got on the internet. Um, but I was going to mm. mention Thimbleweed Park there because I know in that game there is, like, um, there's, there's telephones that you find all over the game, isn't there, where you call a hint line? Yeah. And it will help mm. you out. So I think the fact that you can have those in-game and it doesn't totally take you out of the experience and feels part of it is, mm. yeah, it's a really creative way of doing it, I think. Yeah, exactly. Especially because this style of game is intended to be so immersive within a very specific world it's so character driven it's so world driven that it feels like the biggest crime is to rip someone out of that and send them to an online walkthrough yeah know? or you could even have an old school phone in line and an operator yeah, for a premium rate <laughs> yeah true <laughs> yeah dollar a minute well there's there's also some uh, new kind of features with the game where the choices that you make in the game kind of choose your destiny and in in Fimbleweed Park they also had a, a similar kind of thing you know every time you play it, it's a different experience um how, how yeah. did you work this all out <laughs> you know? yeah it sounds complicated yeah it, it is uh, <laughs> uh which is definitely something that we are coming to learn more and more but it's definitely also something that really excites us so all of our puzzles have multiple pathways through them um which means that you're able to adapt various play styles so you might be the type of player who just likes to scrounge the environment for things and then put those things together and use those to solve problems. And if that's what you want to do, then that's what you can do. But you might also be the type of player who just wants to um, talk to all the characters and learn their backstory and learn their secrets and learn what you can from them and then use that information to progress. And so we're trying to cater to these multiple play styles um, and also add an, an element of replayability in there as well. Something that's quite important to me um, is a concept that was coined by Thomas Grip of Frictional Games called Analog Choice, 
whereby choices aren't necessarily um, surfaced to the player in a bespoke manner. Do you want to do the Paragon thing? Do you want to do the Renegade thing? Rather, they're embedded within the interactions within the game space itself. So you might not even know that you're making a choice, but you are making a choice, which is much more akin to how A, real life decision making is made, Mm. but B, um, how natural play occurs, I think. Um, and natural exploration occurs. You just you try things, and some things will yield results, and some things won't. And um, yeah, we're quite enamored with the idea that two people could play the game, have an entirely different experience, but then not even necessarily know be able to pinpoint at what points that diverged. Yeah, um, yeah which also <clears throat> we've discussed. Like that is a, there's also um, a potential problem with that mm. in not knowing the where there are other paths, so you don't. You know, players may not ever experience <clears throat> that other that other path or that other, you know, yeah, the other path. Um, so, really trying to think about how to either encourage um, replays mm. or to encourage kind of the community talking about their own playthroughs. And so, whether it's through let's plays or whatever it is, mm. people can see, oh, yeah, they tried. They did. They went that way, and mm. uh, they did that, and I didn't do it that way. That's cool. Yeah. You know, that's great. Yeah. But it's almost it's almost an acknowledgement of the fact that games now exist within this space where they do have communities around them, and those communities are yeah. mm-hmm. actively talking and showing each other playthroughs and right. yeah. writing previews and you know like uh, recounting their tales, and it's it's acknowledging that there is that meta layer that sits above it as well. Yeah. Um, which we're so fortunate to have nowadays. The <laughs> the you know the old um, games didn't didn't have they didn't have waiting that. for your for the K zone walkthrough. Yeah, oh, <laughs> maybe physical meetups. You yeah. know. But. Well, recently on our show we did um, you know a whole month about adventure games, and um, mm. we, Ravi and I were amazed at how well that was received. Because going into it, you know, it's kind of like there has been new releases over the last couple of years, but it did kind of feel like adventuring had kind of it gone away and faded a bit into the background, especially in the last decade. Did you kind of get a bit of confidence about games like Thimbleweed Park coming out and being a success? And why did you decide to do an adventure game rather than like, you know, an open world game or an FPS or something like that that might be a little bit more accessible, I guess? FPS? Oh, oh no. <laughs> they, they haven't been done much. <laughs> I'm just really um, attached to point and clicks. Um, and I think it's, I mean, at, the, at its core, um, the game is about it's about telling a story um yeah i just felt that it was the best first kind of foray into gaming this is bad goat's first game so yeah i just felt like that was the the direction that would be best so what would you say is the most fun thing you've done so far developing this title oh we took it to uh pax australia just last month Mm -hmm. which was a huge experience for both of us Mm -hmm. um I actually had two games on the show floor, so I was running around like a headless chook. <laughs> um, but but it was that was incredible because just putting it in front of people who had never even experienced or been exposed to any of any of it before, and having that immediate response from them, and being able to meet so many people who are passionate about adventure games and about retro gaming, and also just passionate about storytelling in games, or especially um, we had so many parents come up Mm. to us and express how happy they were to see a story about family and parenthood um Mm. on on display Mm. and being actively developed Mm -hmm. um 
So that was a that was a huge experience. Yeah. It for was us. very rewarding seeing um, parents who you know said to us, oh, "They grew up loving these games," mm. and then they'd sit there with their kids playing the game together. That was that was rewarding. Yeah, yeah, we love seeing that shows when you get like you know a dad and his son or daughter and the the playing like an old arcade game that dad grew up playing, and the kids like wide eyed like, "Wow, this is great." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. I play a lot of adventure games with my girlfriend and we just kind of mm. both sit there and then it's like two brains. Yeah. <laughs> Help, you know. But a brain and a half. You've yeah, half oh, thanks. <laughs> but I guess that is, I, I often hear about that, couples playing these kind of games. I mean, it's, uh, have the retro community kind of latched on to, to you guys as well and, and, and give you a lot of acceptance? Well, you guys have. No. So, yeah, we, we, we've definitely been like... We've definitely had a very lovely reception. I think that it's the thing that we've struggled with the most is trying to reach the people that we think will care. <laughs> Sometimes I think that um, when you're putting yourself out there online, it can it can very much feel like you're screaming into the void. But um, we've managed to create a, a, quite a modest little community, but a really lovely one who who are quite interested in the game and have ideas and opinions and want to be involved. Um, we've also been lucky enough to be, Melbourne has quite a thriving independent scene. And so we've been lucky enough to go to lots of meetups um, and meet other local devs who are also really passionate about creating experiences that are different or are pushing boundaries. And, and they've all been incredibly accommodating in, in offering us support and advice and so yeah it's 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 slow work but it's it's happening well, um, but in terms of actually reaching the retro community i think that we've yeah we've, we've found it difficult mm-hmm. actually i think of course it's that big these days as well and there's there's that many new products and games and everything coming out all the time isn't it it's, it's getting to be heard i guess mm. <laughs> yes which, exactly which, which is why it's good to have you guys on <laughs> well thank you for having us it's been lovely um <laughs> We we were wondering just on the topic. I'm slipping into interviewer mode here again. Sure. But um, something that interests us, I mean, obviously around retro games is is what you do in terms of, I suppose, acting partly as journalists showing what is happening actively in the scene, but also being retroactively looking back and archiving a lot of this stuff and and um. I suppose, trying to preserve a lot of the culture of retro gaming. And I, I have a question for you, which is why do you think it's important to be archiving this and to be actively growing this community and engaging with retro games culture? And yep. what do you think modern games culture can learn from retro games culture? Well, I think in terms of when we started doing this podcast, I mean, kind of one of the goals was that we wanted to get stories that maybe hadn't been told before about, you know, games or companies that we we grew up with um and a lot of them it's really weird because we've got in touch with people who we thought yeah, you know they're, they're too big they're too famous they're, they're probably not involved in games anymore they won't care about it but you're looking at a stage where a lot of these guys are maybe like close to retirement age and they actually want to share their story if they haven't done so already so it kind of this might be the only time that they actually speak out you know in their lifetime and it gives mm. us a chance to document that which i th- i think is important i mean especially for Ravi and I, who grew, grew up like as lifelong video games players, and you know, each week doing the show, we get to talk to our heroes essentially, which is something we never dreamed that we'd do. But the fact that we can share that with other people as well, and people find it interesting, is just and crazy. I, and I think without the internet as well, just like your company, um, you know, 
it, we wouldn't be able to collaborate and we wouldn't be able to get any guests on there. We'd probably be running around the country trying to yeah. And yeah, <laughs> get everybody on. And, o- and often back in the day, you'd read stuff in magazines, but then... You know, you can you can think something that you read in the magazine's true, and you read that magazine twenty years ago, but then when you actually get to speak to the person who that article was about, that stuck in your mind, and they're like, "Oh no, that's totally false." <laughs> you get the real story. That's uh, <laughs> that's always amazing too. So, uh, and uh, and talking about the modern stuff as well, it's like that's one thing that I think Ravi and I didn't really expect coming into this podcast when we started it. Just how much development, and increasingly so over the last three years that we've been doing this, how much new stuff is coming out in kind of the retro. Yeah, it's it. like a whole new genres come which is retro style your modern retro yeah yeah because yeah. you had indie <laughs> games which before. sounds like an oxymoron yeah. <laughs> yeah we get like journalists interviewing us and they're like um, what there's 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 modern retro news how does that work then i'm like they never get their head around that's <laughs> wonderful so, hope, so wonderful. hope that answered your question yeah no absolutely um yeah I, I just just to further your point about um being surprised i suppose at the the warmth that you've received from these big figureheads i think that games does sit in a really nice space where in general everyone's quite nice and everyone just wants to see games as a as a cultural institution as an, and as an industry just grow and flourish and reach more people um and it as well because it's such a young industry you're able to get these people who are, you know, forefathers and foremothers of the of the industry, and they're still around. They're still doing these talks and these interviews, and they're still relevant. Um, yeah. And that's really special. I mean, there's no way that you'd get one of the Lumi brothers on yeah, a podcast yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the thing. If we were doing a movie podcast, I mean, that started 100 years ago. So <laughs> the guys have found exactly. that are not around anymore. But I mean, we we had Nolan Bushnell on last year, and uh, <laughs> you know, that's the thing. It feels like video games have been around forever, but really, it's only like what 40 years, really, I guess. Which, in terms of human history, isn't very long. Yeah. Um, something that struck me uh, the other day, I noticed that um, you'd actually had Professor Bartle on your podcast. Yeah, and we did. We we study his work at university level and it was such a shock to me because I'm so used to everything that I studied at university being from some dude who's now dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, Professor Bartle, if you're listening to this, but, um, it, but it, it, it's incredible that these um, figures who are in the, even the academic sphere of video games mm. um, are around and active and they, they're like these theories that uh, founding theories of games, um, yeah, are still are still being talked about. It's great. Yeah, and it's constantly evolving as well, which is great. And I mean, it's awesome that you know, like guys like you are carrying that forward as well, and like learning from these, uh, you know, these classic games and genres, and bringing it into a new world, and a new generation as well. So, uh, and I think anyone that loves those classic point-and-click games who listens to our show will will be a big fan of your game too. Because um, oh, the other style is very, very easy to get into. I mean, when can we expect the game then? Have you, have you got like a release date in mind for it? Um, no specific date, but <clears throat> we're aiming towards the end of 2019. Well, you'll have to come on again and give us a little shout when you do. Wonderful. Yes. That would, we'd love that. Well, Felix Ezra, it's been amazing talking to you both. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, good luck with Henry Moss and the Wormhole Conspiracy. Really looking forward to seeing it. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah.